Hello and welcome to the Business of Restoration. This is a podcast put on by Nextgear Solutions. My name is Tim Kempe. I'm the chief of staff here at Nextgear Solutions. My voice is not one that you hear very often on this podcast. This is a conversation for restoration owners, with restoration owners, and typically our host is Garrett Gray. Today we have Garrett Gray having conversation with O.P. Almarez and Tim Bauer of Allied Restoration and consulting group Restoration Mastery in Southern California. Really excited about all that they have to talk about today. If you have ideas on how this podcast could be even better, or topics or speakers or anything else that you'd like to see us focus on here, I would love to hear from you. Best way to get in touch with me is is to send me an email, tim.kempe at nextgearsolutions.com. That's tim.kempe at nextgearsolutions.com. Now, without further ado, here's Garrett Gray, O.P. Almarez, and Tim Bauer. Enjoy. Welcome, guys. Thanks for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Thank you, Garrett. Thanks for having us. Give me um, kind of the, you know, 30 second to, you know, Two-minute uh, uh, introduction. Um, maybe, OP, why don't you start, and then uh, um, Tim, and then I'd love to hear the story of how you guys came together. Sure. So, you know, I, I've been in the disaster restoration business um, for over 25 years. I started off as a carpet installer, laying carpet, and um, I ran into Service Master, and really, they kept me really busy with, you know, working six days a week doing flooring. And so it really attracted me as to, wow, where are they getting their business from? And once I found out it was insurance work, uh, I figured out a way how to uh, make myself relevant. And so I was hired there as an estimator, worked my way up and, uh, you know, pretty quick found out that, you know, if I'm able to deliver a service to the adjuster, uh, which includes keeping the customer happy, that the business would continue to repeat itself. And so when I figured that out, I thought, okay, cool, I can do this. And uh, then I went from service master to another company. I was there for over 14 years uh, and is where I met Tim. And uh, then years after that, my little brother, Victor, and I started Allied Restoration in 2008 in the middle or the beginning of the recession. Um, so we did that. And, um, you know, then I'll, I'll go into later, Garrett, how, how Tim and I kind of like meshed together. But uh, the reality is, uh, two and a half years into the business, uh, Tim and I met uh, met up again and uh, and really just took off from there. So, OP, um, you're in the Los Angeles area, is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. And uh, and the, the other thing that I found really interesting about your overall story um, is that you you really bootstrapped yourself up. So you you didn't come from any notable means. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you, you know, growing up, we grew up on government cheese and food stamps. Wow. And, um, you know, for me, I, I didn't know any different, except when I started going to junior high and the girls started making fun of my shoes. <laughs> so, oh, no. um, like, you know, everyone would get new shoes every two or three months and I had to stick with mine until Christmas time. Oh, wow. so, um, so that's when I really began to notice that there was a big disparity between who I was and who other people were. And I really honestly, that's when I really began to figure out like, okay, I need to become a better everything. You know, my parents were doing the best that they possibly could, but I needed to be able to have, you know, finances in the future because I knew that, you know, without it, I would be repeating the same cycle of what I was going through and living through. And I didn't want that for, for myself or for my, my future family. Um, but it was, it was then Garrett, that really, I began to focus on how can I develop myself to become someone different. And, uh, and I searched and searched and it was hard work and innovation and really courage. You know, when, when you come from really, you know, those means of not having enough, you have to stretch yourself into some very uncomfortable places that you didn't know you could grow into. And, and it's really kind of clunky, but you got to have the confidence to continue going forward and knowing that I've got to get through this phase in order for me to reach, uh, my goals. Otherwise I'm going to get stuck. And so a lot of courage along the way to, to execute. Yeah. I think I love that story. I, I think, you know, if you look at a lot of restoration companies, you know, first generation companies, you know, typically um, have, you know, some similar stories today, 
you know, a lot of uh, people are inheriting their companies and, you know, taking them to new heights, but uh, you know, the, the, getting the first rock up the hill is, is usually the hardest. And it's, uh, it's inspiring to me to, to meet people who have, you know, basically done it without any help. Okay. So Tim, um, tell me a little bit more about your history and, uh, um, and, you know, your perspective on how you met uh, OP. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in lovely Claremont, California, which if anyone's aware, it's kind of this weird little liberal college town in the midst of the Inland Empire, which is where people that can't afford to live in Los Angeles and Orange County live, uh, and they just commute into the major urban centers to work. It's uh, the equivalent of the suburbs, I guess, in other territories. Got it. Um, And so my dad actually ran the food service for the college system. So while we lived in a college town and we were surrounded by wealth and affluence, uh, we were, you know, living kind of in the, the slummy part of Claremont uh, and commuting in. And so um, I was always a very nerdy kid. Uh, I grew up and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, I grew up morbidly obese. Uh, I like to tell people I was born at an average weight and it was pretty much downhill from there. Um, and I, I entered this business after uh, spending uh, six or seven years uh, running a telemarketing company out of college. And what happened is, is that after that company uh, started to kind of mess around with my commission, I started to consider what other opportunities were out there for me. And, you know, whether it's Providence or the universe, uh, half of San Bernardino lit on fire that night. Mm. And uh, there was this massive wildfire. And a person that I knew really well was uh, a fire chaser, right? And <laughs> so he, uh, he decided after the, the city burned down, basically, that this would be a good opportunity to start his own organization. But he didn't have the resources to sell all of these jobs. And he knew that my background was really in sales and marketing and understanding what it took to close a sale. And so he hired me to do what sounded like a lot of fun, which was to go out the second someone's house burns down and wait on the street with 40 to 50 of your closest friends uh, waiting your turn to talk to them and tell them why they should sign your contract instead of the other 49 that are being waved in their faces uh, three seconds after they've lost everything that they've owned. Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm speaking about this with a little bit of tongue in cheek because that was a hard sale. I, I honestly thought it couldn't get harder than telemarketing and I was <laughs> definitely wrong. Like <laughs> I was wrong on an epic scale that I don't know that I've ever been wrong before or since. And it was, it, it was an incredibly challenging sale uh, but I figured out how to do it a little bit differently. And I realized that there was a way for me to be successful in that space that didn't include looking like everyone else. And so I went out and I saw it, uh, a certain type of sales training. And, and this is relevant to OP and I eventually getting together. But I really glommed on to a sales system that Jerry Edel is also a big fan of. Uh, which is called the Sandler sales system, if you're familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it, yeah. The Sandler sales system is uh, uh, a little abrupt, right? Like it, it's, it's not, it, it's not your, your typical sales process. Yeah. I, I, it is definitely not your typical sales process. I will say abrupt is, is very interesting. It's designed around the idea that we can interrupt patterns between the buyer and the prospect. Yeah, and and abrupt maybe not the most eloquent way to put it, but that's sort of the first thing that comes to mind. And 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 I I haven't necessarily taken a lot of Sandler sales training, but you know I've been around it. It, it. But it feels like to me the idea is that you're looking to be very different and interrupt in such a way that that the the person that you're trying to sell to is is maybe taken aback and doesn't you know kind of falls into your leadership as opposed to the other way around. Absolutely. It's, it's built on this idea that buyers know how to interact with sellers because everybody's using the same playbook, right? right. It, it's, uh, it, it's very much a pattern interrupt that it's designed to be, but it's also designed to be very comfortable for the buyer that, 
it, it feels very natural, the whole process. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spokesman for them. I'm not getting uh, any kickbacks for all of this positive <laughs> language. But for me, when you're standing out there with 49 other people and the homeowner is calling you an ambulance chaser or a vulture or, you know, pick a name that I guess we're not going to use on this podcast, right? right. Um, you know, if, if you're being called all of those names, any way that you have to look a little bit different really stands out. So um, that company uh, that I work for eventually goes out of business. But at the time, we were utilizing a another larger restoration company for our contents work, which is where OP was the vice president. And so I know we can kind of let him pick up the story from there. But we uh, we started to talk about potentially working together, not just for our contents referrals, but maybe me go over there and start to chase and market uh, and as well as use some of my other talents and expertise to help grow and scale that business. So tell me, guys, about the dynamic of OP. You own now a restoration company that you founded. Um, you guys work, uh, I think, you know, in the Malibu area, or do you work all over Los Angeles? Yes. Yes. Okay. Malibu, got- L.A., Beverly Hills, yeah, and, Orange and County. You, you guys have segmented yourself as as primarily catering to the high-end um, uh, property owners in, in LA and, and the surrounding areas. Yes. Right? And, and, yeah. And, and Garrett, we, we've, we've worked very, very hard for many, many years to make that happen. I know uh, we've been uh, known for that and, and people call us and they want tips and tricks and there's a method to all of this and, and how we do it. But more importantly, there's consistency that must take place and the quality of what you deliver and the service of what you deliver is not something that can be compromised. And so if a company is willing to tackle this end of the business, uh, you're committing to a lot of um, pain <laughs> because <laughs> you must you must always uh, continue to evolve and grow and, and, and become uh, better, essentially. And, I, and I'm assuming that, you know, what, whatever your standard was five years ago or a year ago or two years ago, and now especially in the age of COVID, um, that you are constantly having to raise that bar uh, because, one, you're dealing with uh, probably uh, more high-maintenance customers, and two, uh, most likely of others that are trying to chase that same customer base. Yes, absolutely right. You know, when I, you know, I'm going to go back just really quick a little bit because I want to give this this framework. When I was working for this other company, uh, I was there for 14 years. I was a vice president. That's where Tim and I first met. He came from the chasing world. I got him in. I met him at 300 plus pounds, right? And I I love this guy. Like he was my marketing guy, and I was the VP. And he and I had this beautiful connection um, with my little brother too. My little brother was the operations manager at the time, and. Uh, Tim ended up leaving after a couple of years and I, I didn't want that to happen. And it wasn't my call. It was, you know, he and the, the business owner didn't have a good um, relationship on their way out. And so I've always told Tim, Tim, man, I'm going to reach out to you. I promise you we're going to stay connected. And years later, my little brother, Victor, and I started Allied Restoration in 2008. And Tim was selling life insurance of all things. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he comes knocking at my door, 300 plus pounds, you know, and, and he, he used to have this waddle. Okay. And I, <laughs> I love, I love seeing him. Right. And he'd say, Hey, Hey guys, you guys really need life insurance. And I said, you know, Tim, I know, but man, we're just a few months in and we don't have any extra cash, but Garrett, in the back of my mind, I've, I've taken a lot of training in the past and I've, because I've, I've always been someone who wants to study wealth and see how people uh, make it and then how they keep it. And yeah. one of the biggest ways of keeping it is life insurance. Yes. So I knew, okay, this is something I have to do. So Tim was so persistent. I think it was the third time he came around within the first year. And we said, okay, Tim, thank you. Let's do it. And so my little brother, Victor and I got life insurance and less than a year later, Garrett, my little brother, uh, suddenly passes away. No way. Yeah. Yeah, it was a severe case of pancreatitis. Like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, my whole world fell apart. And I, I just want to add that, you know, I feel like Tim is really, you know, not only a brother from another mother, but really a godsend to me. And, and that's why I feel so connected to this guy. And um, 
you know, if it weren't for him, uh, Allied Restoration would not be existing at all. Um, because we, we got, you know, we had key man insurance, we had all these things in place. And after that happened, I said, Tim, man, we got to like, this is not by accident. We got to do something together. And, and really, um, you know, kind of our hearts came together. We said, Let, let's go, let's go make a difference in the world. So I, so I think this is a great place to pause. I mean, wow, what a, what a amazing story. Um, condolences. I think that's got to be one of the hardest things to, to, to work through. Um, but I think that that's a really important message for um, a lot of the people who listen to us. Um, you last, uh, maybe two episodes ago, uh, we talked a lot about uh, um, general uh, generational wealth transfer strategies and making sure that you have uh, your business and um, uh, whatever wealth you've accumulated, um, uh, you know, set up in the right, you know, trusts or, or at least with the right wills so that uh, you don't go through uh, your typical probate and you avoid any sort of death right. tax and how you've got to start that planning process early, not, not uh, um, you, you know, uh, when you think there might be a, a need for it. It uh, sounds like what happened with your brother was sudden, and um, and it also sounds like whatever life insurance Tim sold you was was really helpful in um, dealing with the aftermath. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, uh, we should add, he was only thirty nine years old. Is wow. that right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think a great lesson for everybody else: if you don't have key man insurance or life insurance, um, it, it's uh, you know, I, Tim, you, you may have some better advice on this than, than I do since you've sold it. I, I look at uh, uh, life insurance as, as more like uh, car rental insurance um, or not car rental, but, you know, car insurance. Uh, so I, I go for a higher amount, but uh, I go for term. Um, I don't know if you have any quick tidbits for the people listening, uh, if that's the right approach or not. But yeah, so um, I think uh, <laughs> if I could tell the story like this, uh, one of the things we do with with Restoration Mastery is, is we coach and consult with business owners, uh, restoration company owners. And we were actually on a call yesterday uh, with uh, one of our clients who was sharing with us uh, one of the challenges that uh, they were experiencing with one of their employees. And it was like, it was the kind of thing where you hear it and you're like, oh, there's no question that these two, the employee and the business owner, are are probably not a good fit. And there's yeah. all kinds of pain and struggle and challenges. And it's like he like like this this employee probably doesn't belong in this organization. And so, you know, we naturally suggest, you know, it's probably time to to let this individual go. And he says, no, there, there's no way I, I, I can't find a way to replace them. There's just no way uh, I will. I, I have to deal with all this pain. And so I, I bring that up because we keep people because we think it's so hard to replace them. And yet we have no protection to secure the business if something were to happen to them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and in this in this environment, like, let's be honest here. Nobody gets like when I ask people, what do you love about the restoration business? The thing I never hear is the hours, right? right. Or, right. or how stress free it is, right? <laughs> I do it because it's a very relaxing business to get like, because that's. Yeah, I always get to keep my booked vacations. Like Absolutely, that's not something you're never going to hear. Yeah, no, my my kids. Let me tell you, their 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 stimulus and response every time a phone rings, they get quiet. Or I loved I loved how I get to sleep all the way through the night. Like, oh, that's, of course, yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I I lose my children on a near weekly basis. I don't know the last moment I didn't know where my cell phone was. Like right. Right. If it's not attached to my, I think if you cut off my leg and took my phone away at the same moment, I would hop to find my phone. <laughs> of course. So it, that this is not a stress-free business. And yet we don't really consider the, the physical effects of that and how we can insulate and protect our businesses from it. So yep. I, I think on individuals like that, we should absolutely have key man uh, life insurance. And in situations where you have a partnership, you need a buy-sell agreement, which states legally, this is prepared by an attorney, what would you do if one of the partners were to die, become disabled, uh, go through a divorce or you know, drug addiction or some other thing that's outside of your circumstances. But you also need to fund that buy-sell agreement with life insurance because 
if in that instance, one of the partners passes away and now you have a contract that says you can buy out their widow for a million dollars, but you don't have a million dollars, well, that's not going to be a very effective agreement for you. And the best way to handle that is by funding that with life insurance that essentially you get a million dollars from the life insurance company, which you then use to purchase the business from the widow and not become business partners with somebody who you hardly know and maybe only have dinner and drinks with once or twice a year. The other piece of advice I'll throw on top of this is, is you know, depending on who's selling you the life insurance and Tim, no offense here, um, make sure you get some outside um, advice on how you structure uh, the life insurance policy and especially who pays for it. Um, you know, there's kind of this overall um, thought that, you know, life insurance uh, is a non-taxable event and, and sometimes how you structure that can uh, um uh, can change that. So um, I, I know I got some bad advice on that and had to re um, reconfigure uh, the way my life insurance policies were set up to make them truly uh, a non-taxable event. So uh, I won't I won't even pretend to try to give out that advice on this uh, um, uh, on this podcast. But I do think that getting um, non-interested advice, people who aren't just selling you the policy for how you structure it, is is really important. For sure. And I, I don't sell insurance anymore, to be clear. So definitely talk to <laughs> so you can't call Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, look, I think what's really interesting is that you guys are both you know, running a restoration company and helping others um, uh, manage theirs as well. And I, you know, going through um, a lot of the material you guys have, you have a bunch of different boot camps that you help owners with. What do you think, especially in the the day of COVID, what is separating um, the top performers from those who are either just getting by or, or frankly, those who are, you know, losing business uh, during the environment that we're in today? Yeah, I, you know, what right now, especially when I think about what's happening now, I look back to 2008, 2010, my brother passes away, the stress the um, the pain, the 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 people cashing out because the homeowners, you know, don't want to um, pay someone because their spouse is unemployed. The the economy will magnify what happened in two thousand eight, and, and we're, if we're all paying attention, we understand that the the pandemic is producing something even more powerful of a punch for all of us. And so, I truly believe that leadership. Leadership is the top quality that must be uh, produced by the leader, the owner, the visionary, the company. Because if the leader does not have a clear vision for the tribe, as we call our employees, if you don't have a clear vision for your employees, then they're running around lost and they're looking for someone to give them something. And so a lot of what we've been doing here the last three months is making sure that we're absolutely clear with our staff as to what we're doing, how we're moving in that direction. And, and then we're listening. We're listening with very much a lot of intention to understand what our employees are going through. And so leadership, I think, is, is number one. Uh, but Tim, I'll let you jump in and see what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I think that OP is absolutely right. Uh, one thing that our, our tribe really knows and understands as well as the tribes of the companies that we work with at Restoration Mastery, is that we refuse to be a victim of circumstances that are outside of our control. You know, mm. I, I'm a big believer that the playing field that we deal on as, as restoration companies is a level playing field. Now, sometimes that playing field goes up and it goes down, right? We, we all want to get around. It's funny, you, you go to these events and, and, and you sit around a table and, you know, people start complaining about, you know, third party administrators are ruining <laughs> my ability to make money, right? right? And someone else says, you know, Google Guarantee is ruining my ability to make money and, and Yelp, you know, these consumers, they have a voice and, but, but. All of these market forces are, are consistent throughout the entire industry, right? We're, we're all dealing with this crap, right? So yeah. the playing field may go up or down, but it remains level. And so our tribe understands that we refuse 
to basically drink that Kool-Aid of the narrative that this is destined to destroy our company. This is destined to destroy our business. We refuse to participate in that kind of attitude or language. And so the way that I always see is, okay, look, we've got this handicap, right? You know, I, I, I've got this deal. How do I adjust to it? Right. It's kind of like like I'm a big hockey fan. I, I love hockey. And so one thing that the NHL seems to do over the years is they're always messing with goalie equipment. They make it bigger. They make it smaller. Uh, they change you know size of net. They, they, they mess with things to try to create different balances in different places. All teams are dealing with those same issues, though. They just have to learn to adapt and evolve with the level of that playing field, whether it's up or down. And so we have constantly sought and looked for opportunities. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that if you look for opportunities everywhere you go, opportunities will present themselves, whether you want that to happen or not. So to give you an example, you know, two weeks ago, uh, you know, there's massive uh, protests, violence. I, I live in a loft in downtown Los Angeles. And I'm looking. One that's got to be a that's got to be a crazy place to live right now. Uh, my sister uh, lived in downtown Los Angeles until maybe two or three weeks ago. Moved to Orange County, and I thought, wow, I'm, good I'm timing. Sort of yeah, good timing. I'm sort of happy that my sister is not in the middle of of what's going on. Yeah, and so like it, a couple weeks ago, it's Friday night, and one block to the east of me, there's looting going on, right? One block to the south of me, there's reports that an officer is down and they're calling for assistance. Yeah. One block to the west, they've got enough, enough police officers and National Guards people at Target that I think that the president is inside. Like it is, it, it's, it's insane here. But what I see the next morning is I see all of a sudden a board up truck pull up to one of the local businesses. And I say, oh my gosh, people are boarding up to protect their businesses. Yeah, of course. Now, we never want to capitalize, and this is something that we struggle with in, in disaster restoration companies, right? We never we never want a hurricane or a tornado to come, but we know that those things occur in order for us to stay in business in some instances, right? They, well, they yeah. don't occur for us to stay in business, but we stay in business because they occur in some instances. So I realize this is an opportunity for us to you know serve our local community. And we put up, you know, pay-per-click ads for board ups. And I kid you not, the level of the people that were calling us instantly was just insane. Like we were, we were on Rodeo Drive for the next, it, it was the cheapest weekend I've ever spent in Rodeo Drive. You know, <laughs> I was buying plywood instead of diamonds, right? So it was, it was the least baller weekend anyone has ever spent in Rodeo Drive, but we were there the entire time and beyond, right? And the reason for that is, is at Allied Restoration, we're always looking for opportunities. We refuse to participate that this in this dialogue that the sky is falling and there's no way we'll survive. I don't care who's in the White House. I don't care who's in the governor's office. I just care where my techs are and how can I get them on better job sites every single minute of the day. And if you're looking for the answers to those questions, the answers will manifest themselves. Boom. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, this is all mental and and how you recognize opportunity and how you respond to it is is key. How do you how do you keep a group of people um, who aren't necessarily as in, you know, financially invested as, as you guys might be um, marching in that same direction? You know, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, what what I believe and what we teach is you you must love your employees. Like that is a prerequisite. And so, you know, when I when we talk to people, especially when we're in our boot camps, you know, I start talking about loving your employees and, you know, I see the eyes rolling and I see like the pens dropping and I'm like, look, man, like it's a little you, too gushy for this uh, industry. It's a little too gushy. But the reality is, is that how, why would you want to lead someone that you just dislike? And, and, and then you have to realize that that person uh, or those people can really inhibit your growth. And so love the people there or get them out. I, I can't agree more. I, I think that is probably uh, interesting that your experience is that that's when people start to tune out. I, I actually mm -hmm. think you know, if I was being you know fully honest um, with you know my experience uh, in this industry as well, I 
think that's a, probably the biggest challenge that I see with um, people who own restoration companies um, and especially the ones who don't understand why they struggle with turnover or struggle to have an engaging culture. And, you know, I, I think there's a difference between saying that you love employees and trying to say all the quintessential, you know, buzzwords versus actually really having a heart for the people that work for you. Yeah. And we've spoken to one of your employees. I remember back when we were doing the event and this one gal, I forget her name, but she was just raving over you and the culture. And I thought that's powerful. <laughs> that's powerful. I, and- we, we pay them to do that extra though. So <laughs> don't, you know, take that for, you know, grain of salt. I love it. And, you know, when I say love your people, I don't mean like, you know, shower them with money and gifts. I mean, really care about your people. But within that care and that love is there has to be accountability and there has to be boundaries. Like yes. those, everything goes together. It's not one or the other. Like I'm, I'm huge on everyone must do their job. And, and Tim has painted this pretty cool picture that we've used in the last few months is that we're all surrounded in a circle around this huge piano, every one of us as employees. And our job is just to lift exactly where we are. Everyone lift together. And the person that's not lifting enough is causing more pain for the next person. That's right. And so, so we have to uni- uniformly lift together so we can move on to the next uh, phase of what we're doing. So the boundaries must be there. The accountability must be there. And so, you know, with our leadership team, and that, that's another aspect of, of leaders. Once, once you as a leader leads, you must grow more leaders. Like none of this works, Garrett, with just OP being the leader. None of yeah. it works. I've got three other leaders that are powerful and I spend time coaching them. And we spend time together learning how to lead the rest of the tribe so we can do more um, faster. Yeah. And- if I could say real quick on on the growing the culture, Garrett, uh, to piggyback off what OP's saying about boundaries, accountability, all of this is important. We also have a culture where not only do we love our people, but the people are encouraged to love each other. And yeah. so, and and I'll give you a practical example. You know, again, I, I'm always looking for opportunities, right? So, I you know, living in downtown, every night at 8 p.m. Everybody in the lofts all around me, they go out on their balcony, they flash their lights, they hit pans, and they cheer for the first responders, and they salute them every night. And so we had a great idea, and we thought, what about, you know, we, we're, we're helping with COVID-19 disinfection, we're, we're helping, you know, we're continuing with EMS, and our, our workers are out there every day. They were working on a 125,000 square foot church disinfection project. And they were coming home, we knew, on a Saturday uh, about 1 or 2 o'clock. And so we secretly got all of our employees together and we said, look, guys, purely optional. You, you know, this is not paid, but if you want to come <laughs> and say thank you, come on down and uh, make signs saying we salute you. We have a big electronic marquee sign that's visible from the freeway. And oh, we, wow. said, we said thank you. You know, thank you ever. Thank you, Jordan. We, we put each of their names one by one on a different display. And as they drove up, they saw just about every employee in the organization. A lot of our employees brought their families, their spouses, their children, and they celebrated and cheered and saluted our first responders as they pulled into our parking lot and just clapped and, and cheered for them with music. A few people uh, eventually got up and and made speeches and shouted out, you know, in the parking lot, uh, how much we are grateful. And so that culture of appreciation is cultivated from day one. I, I tell new applicants, I say, if you cannot cash a passion check, you will be underpaid for what you do here. And I tell every single person that. In other words, if you don't love working here, I'm not going to pay you enough because you will work hard. You will put in hours. This is a hard business. Yep. If you love working here, it will be worth it. And if you do not love it, I, and I don't mean if you like it, I mean if you like love it. I tell them in 90 days, you're going to be in one of two places. You're either going to be figuring out where on your body you want to put an allied restoration tattoo, or you're going to be <laughs> running like hell to get away from us because we're, you're going to think we're insane. And you're going to be in one of those two places. There's no in between. There's no like, we don't water down what we are. We don't sugarcoat it. We are 100% allied, like through and through, like us or not. And in fact, we, we want it that way. We've been, that is by design. How many employees does Allied have? 
So we're right around 50 right now. Right around 50. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just under 50. And, and how do you, so I, I get you guys are going to exude this passion. It sounds like to me, you have at least another layer down and maybe throughout the entire organization. How do you, how have you been able to get those around you, especially that second layer down of leadership to, uh, um, uh, to exude that same passion for the culture that you're trying to build? You know, I, I think it's consistent indoctrination, right? And, and I use the term indoctrination, you know, tongue in cheek, but every single morning at 7.30 a.m., we review one of our service values or core values on a conference call with our entire production and project management team. Our EMS department, uh, mitigation department, holds a separate call where they also go over that same service value with a motivational quote where the employee, it's always led by a different employee every day, is uh, basically shares how they use that core value in their position. And then each member of the staff has an opportunity to share a brief gratitude or uh, a big win from yesterday where the employees are encouraged to recognize and support each other. And so I I will tell you, you know, culture is not born out of, well, I I shouldn't say that. The culture you want is not born out of accident, right? If if you want a culture by design, because there will be a culture, whether you build it or not, it's just like, do you want your employees to build your culture or do you want to be responsible for it? There will be one. And, and we, by design, implement our culture every single day, and it creates accountability. And what's great is, is when you have an organization that's filled with leaders like that, that understand what our core values mean and what it means to their position, they hold each other accountable, which yeah. is great. They, they almost fire each other, not, not legally, but what happens is an employee is like, I can't work around these people. They hold me too accountable. Like, I can't, I can't be lazy here. I can't disappear here. I can't fade into the background here. There's no way for that to take place in our organization because of that indoctrination. And I will tell you, if you compliment somebody's garden, the other thing that goes into that is a lot of pruning, right? Yeah. We are we, we have to be quick to terminate uh, when we have someone that is not a cultural fit. And we are good at making those hard decisions. I know OP's got a million stories of having to let go employees that that we thought you know were integral to our success and we could not survive without. And, and lo and behold, like a like a second uh, kidney or liver? What, what, what do we, kidney? You only need one kidney, right? Like a second kidney, we were able to get rid of them. You need both livers. I should know that in the restoration business or one liver anyway. Do we have two livers? I think we I, only have I, one. I, after COVID, I wish I had two livers or at least I could get a new one because I, <laughs> I've probably been drinking a whole lot more than I, my liver is happy with. But sure. uh, <laughs> uh, let me transition to, to marketing. You guys um, have the Marketing Minute videos on the r r magazine and i know that uh the restoration mastery program we have uh, uh, focuses a lot on marketing um wh- what are you willing to share with us since uh no one's paying you for for your uh, time on the podcast yeah look I, garrett i for us man here's a funny thing garrett you've probably seen this in, in business already you can give out the best advice on exactly how to do it and most <laughs> people won't even do it that's true right so, so we're not afraid to, to share. Um, but I would say, like, during this pandemic time, like, we need the, the leadership. There, there's always a need for warriors, right? And I, we paint warriors out as hunters, people that go out and hunt, get the food, go in the battle, bring the food back to feed the rest of the tribe so the rest of the tribe can get to work. But in addition to the warrior mentality, there's also a place for the general mentality and the general really is more looking at the bigger picture and understanding and seeing what's coming. And so he, he's the one who spends the time managing, okay, the direction we're going to go in. So hunters, warriors, absolutely necessary during this pandemic time, the leaders must become generals. They must take the time to plan things out and to really understand the landscape as to what's happening. And so, you know, right now there are a lot of restoration companies that have gotten into COVID-19 cleaning, but there are many more that have been waiting on the sidelines. And so my concern for, for the ones waiting on the sidelines are, my friend, 
you must have a plan for everything else that's going on because we we see the claims activity dropping. We see that's that's a reality. Do you see the us. actual claims dropping or just people allowing you to get into the house to get started? Yeah, so uh, I will share one statistic that we found here locally. Uh, Google pay-per-click volume for water damage in Southern California is down 30% year over year. And wow. so I, I think what, what that is, what's responsible for that indication is that if you think about the calls you receive when a client calls you with water damage, and in California, we don't have hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, we don't have catastrophe-driven events, with the exception of the occasional wildfire and, you know, once a decade earthquakes. Earthquake, yeah. So the story we hear is, hey, I came home from work and I found that my toilet had been running all day, or I returned from vacation and my supply line had leaked. Well, people aren't leaving their house right now. So what's happening is, is they're catching these things before they become claims worthy events in a lot of instances. And not only that, like to your credit, you know, I had an A-list celebrity who called me a couple of weeks ago, his kid's playroom was soaking wet. And he said, look, can I wait? Right. And, and by the way, we, we never use names. You know, my good friend, Paul McCartney told me never to name drop. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, like he as a celebrity was like, should I just leave this wet? And I'm like, look, your kid is in there. Mold could grow, at least dry it out. And then we can seal it up and we can wait to come back and do the repairs later. I'll come in socially distance, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there are a certain number of people who are also delaying work as a result of this. So, you know, this is, that's what OP is referring to. And sorry to interrupt OP, I'll let you continue. No, no, that's good. So, so Gary, I think one of the things that, that restorers can do now or contractors, anyone is really identify the opportunities that are there, but also don't neglect what's been giving you business this entire time for as long as you've been in business. You know, we love our insurance adjusters, our insurance companies, and that's, that's how we do business right now. There isn't the frequency, but right now is a time to really grow roots in those relationships. If yeah. there's anything anyone hears, it's dive in to growing roots with those relationships, even if they're not giving you anything back. It really, really matters because once the faucet gets turned back on and things start to get back to somewhat of a normal, I don't know that it'll ever get back to how it was, uh, but there's going to be somewhat of frequency. You got to have roots, man, if you're going to be the one getting the call. And what do you think is separating the people who are who are responding well, is it just recognizing the opportunity and being willing to go, you know, hustle for more board ups or get into COVID cleanup, um, making sure that they're staying in touch with the, their normal sources of, of business, even if, if claim volume is low right now, what is it a combination or is there a, a single thing people can be doing to, uh, to come out of this? Okay. I think what's holding most people back is fear, fear of the unknown. Like no one knows how to clean COVID-19 until a few months back, right? right? So it's the fear of the unknown. But the reality is as a leader, as a business owner, man, you've got to be resilient and you you have to have creativity and you must innovate. Like 1000%, all those things need to be moving at once. And so that's why it's so important for the leader to grow more leaders because the leader you know, most most business owners have uh, HDH. What is that called? ADD, right? ADHD. Yeah, ADHD. Right. And so, I don't. I've got it. I don't see it as a deficit. I see it as part of an abundance of attention. But the reality is, you have to be able to harness that attention to make sure you're able to execute. And so, we use that energy and move it into the right place. And if you don't have people side by side with you that are able to execute on your ideas, then your ideas turn into just a, a mulch of just a bunch of things that never get done. Because I've been able to build more leaders, I have the ability and Tim will tell you like, you know, it'll be two o'clock in the morning. He'll get an email from me. I'm like, boom, let's try this thing now. And let's do that. Let's do this. And because I have enough uh, people with me, we can execute an experiment. Not every idea is going to turn out to be the thing, but if you don't try, you don't innovate, you're never going to bump into that one new source of business that could turn in, turn your business into something completely different or add more value to the existing clients that you have now. So I think innovation is very, very powerful. 
Yeah, and and to to kind of go back to something that you guys said earlier, I think mindset is is key. Um, I think it's really easy for for some to sit back and say, "Hey, this is a once in a lifetime or once in a in a multi generation event," right? And and so um, if I'm not growing this year or if I'm contracting this year, well, so is everybody else. Um, it, you know, I'm I actually just as we were talking, pulled up our kind of national aggregated data and, you know, 2020 job starts um, just crossed over 2018 job starts and are about to rival 2019. And so it, at least from where we, where we sit and we track, you know, same store aggregated anonymous data um, it, this, we, you know, 2019 actually started out a, as a, as a low year or excuse me, 2020 started out as a, as a low year, primarily driven by weather and, and COVID obviously didn't help early on. Uh, but there's been quite a big uptick and I think it's probably because, um, of the board up and, uh, and, and cleaning opportunities that, that are kind of net new to the, to the, um, uh, to the ecosystem. So I think my overall message would be, gosh, if you're sitting back and, and you think this is, you're not getting busy, you should probably challenge your, your uh, marketing and sales uh, people to, to be figuring out where those claims are. Absolutely. And Garrett, one of the things that we are so excited about is that like, because we're doing this cleaning, we've got franchise, restaurant franchises calling us. We've got um, some huge retail establishments calling us, and we're going there and doing frequency of cleaning. Now, I he, here's the beauty. I, I'm not about like, hey, you know, let me just get rid of my restoration company and just do COVID cleaning. I'm not talking no, about that. Yeah. I'm talking about enhancing the business that we have. Now, I have access to that franchise restaurant, and the new vertical of business now opens up because I decide whatever that restaurant business owner is already spending per year, per month on other services, now I get to jump into that realm. See, before you used to knock really hard to try to get someone to open the door and no one would pay attention to you. Right now, they're opening the door saying, come clean my facility. And as a matter of fact, you need to speak to the manager and the vice president of, of, of all these franchises. And it's like, now we have their ear but you know what? Let me just explain what else we can do for you, Mr. Franchise Owner, Mr. Business Owner, and really create a whole new uh, silo of businesses that's like, whoa, there's so much opportunity out here. And I, I'm afraid that not enough contractors, restorers are paying attention to that. You know, we're, so, we're so used to being a one and done, right? right? We go in there, do water damage, and we're out. But man, there's so much more there. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's, there was a whole host of uh, restoration contractors that got into restoration through floor cleaning, right? They were doing carpet cleaning or other types of floor cleaning, and then they kind of morphed into restoration. And in that morphing process, realized that restoration was more profitable than carpet cleaning. And a lot of them abandoned their carpet cleaning and then sort of found out that the reason why they got so successful in, in restoration was because they had that base of they were constantly cleaning people's um, carpets. And so they were the first uh, call they made when when there was a need for some sort of, you know, uh, restoration project, some water damage, right. et cetera. And, you know, I think this is a, a, another potential opportunity for that one. I don't think that this idea of uh, disinfecting, you know, due to COVID is going to go away anytime soon. Um, and I won't name the name, but there is a national brand who I saw a commercial for just the other day, and they're already starting to try to capitalize on this with a kind of a, a shield type sticker that, that restaurants yeah. or businesses can put on their door to say this is, this place is, you know, maintained and cleaned and disinfected. And, and I think, um, you know, that doesn't have to be a national brand, um, seal, but I do think for marketing, even if it's just purely for marketing reasons, uh, businesses are going to want to show that they are um, they are they have a new way of disinfecting and that they're you know relying on professionals to do that, not just their staff. Yeah, so I, I think that that shield uh, helps uh, us understand that that brand understands one of the core tenets of marketing that most restoration companies do not understand. We 
we really in this business are behind the times when it comes to understanding marketing. And yeah. the core principle that they understand is something that, that Zig Ziglar taught many, many years ago, right? And he taught that you can have anything in this life that you want if you help enough other people get what they want, right? And so when we look at marketing, I'm, I'm obsessed with my clients, right? I Facebook stalk them. I would go through their trash if it was legal. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want to know everything because kind of like, like, look, if you want to do something special for your wife, and you buy her a gift card, she's not going to be very impressed, right? But if you buy a gift that really speaks to her needs and what she really wants without her even having to tell you, well, let's just say you're going to have a good Friday night, right? Things are going to happen that are good for you. One and exception so, might be if you would have got her a gift card while you were on Rodeo Drive the other day. Um, there right. you go. There <laughs> that you may go. have worked. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is that we as marketers – See, we realized one of the reasons why we got into disinfection, we said, what do our clients need right now, right? What, what do they really benefit from? And, and so what that shield, for example, speaks to is we realize that what our customers want is they want to get, in the case of our commercial clients, they want to get back into their companies and open for business. McKinsey has found that the number one factor that impacts consumer confidence to go out and shop again is seeing, cleaning, and disinfecting. It's more important to them even than the masks and the social distancing is. Yeah. They want to see this. And so we have to speak to our customers, hey, what do they really want? They don't want a clean business, right? They don't want disinfecting services. What they want is they want a store filled appropriately and responsibly with customers, right? They want revenue back in the doors. And so we have to ask ourselves, look, if that's the keyhole, what do I have that fits in that keyhole? Is it disinfection services? In this case, it is. McKinsey says it is. So I can provide that and I can educate my client. And so we as restorers, that's at Allied, that's what we've been all about. So we don't just ask an adjuster, hey, send me business, for example. What does an adjuster want? An adjuster wants the, close, the file to be closed as quick as possible, right? Uh, in the case of our brokers and agents, what do they want? They want more business. So what we do is when a broker or an agent refers us a client, we go out after the project is finished and we shoot a video from the client saying, oh my God, when I had a claim, my agent was there for me and I have the best insurance agent or broker in Los Angeles. They're incredible and they take care of me and we send it to our client. I've even had I've had some of the largest insurance brokers in the world have their marketing department reach out and they say, how did you guys film these? What software did we use? And I'm like, we used an iPhone with a, <laughs> a, a 300 pound superintendent holding it, right? That's what we used, right? That's our tech, you know, but it, it doesn't matter. Like we get so hung up on the execution of ideas that we, we don't execute on anything. And really, we just had to ask ourselves, what do our clients want? What do they really want? And how can I give it to them? Yeah, I think that's the struggle for a lot of people in our industry is what's the there's there's a nuance to this and and it, it what's what's most obvious isn't necessarily the underlying need that's driving um, uh, people's buying decisions. And I think especially with this one, even just even equipping them with the marketing material um, that they can put up in their stores of how their stores are being maintained or clean, uh, it solves a need for them because in the end, like you said, they just want to get people back into their stores and uh, feeling safe doing so. I, I think I've gotten 5,000 different emails from different airlines or businesses that, that I've worked with in the past that, you know, require some sort of physical presence telling me, you know, how they are now changing their cleaning procedures and, and I should feel safe to, you know, start working with them again. And I think that's, that's key. And a lot of small businesses don't have the resources to do that and partnering with a local restoration company to, to both do that cleaning and, and have that uh, content is, I think, invaluable. Um, 100%. Tim, I want to transition to something, um, you know, maybe even for a selfish reason here. Um, you know, you are semi-famous or maybe very famous for, um, for losing 200 pounds in a year. Um, and not only is that just an amazing, um, feat as somebody who, um, has yo-yoed and struggled with weight myself, um, uh, for, for as long as I can remember. Um, but, uh, um, I, I just think that sort of, um, dedication and, and ability to do that without, you know, surgery or pills, 
um, has got to have broader lessons that that we could apply um, to restoration. So I'd love for you to walk us through um, in the short time we have left the you know the your journey there and, and how you apply what you learned and that experience to restoration. Absolutely, yeah. So I actually I lost my weight while chasing fires. Um, that was my that was my cardio. I like to joke. Um, <laughs> that could do it. Yeah, and so. It, I had all the excuses in the world why it couldn't work, right? Because I was literally in the field 16 hours a day, right? Like I was, if I was awake, I was out chasing, right? And so- I'm starting to sense that you're going to expose that all of my excuses are (laughs) essentially meaningless. Yeah. Anybody, and and my employees can tell you this too, if, if you're looking for an excuse for why something didn't happen, Tim is always the wrong person to call. Got it. Um, you know, because like I, I, I always have stuff. There's always reasons why we can't do something, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and, and what's funny is even an an OP said I was over 300. I I weighed 450 pounds at my wow. peak, and so even at 450 pounds, I used to tell people that I had a slow metabolism, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's what I honestly like believed about myself that these. These issues were biological in nature. And and I'm not taking away from the fact that there are some biological factors that do impact someone's weight, right? Yeah. They can they can make us and but that is that is the gross minority. And and I will tell you, you know, spoiler alert, when I when I do eventually end up, you know, under two hundred pounds, it's because I refused to accept those examples. I refuse to accept those excuses any longer. And so I very simply, uh, I followed conventional wisdom, which is, I know it's absurd. And I get emails all the time saying, what, how do I lose 200 pounds? And I say, you know, eat more vegetables, you know, eat less bad food, uh, avoid processed foods. And that's how you do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, no, what's the silver this? bullet? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Can I just have those acai berries and like they'll burn the fat away? Isn't, you know, is there a freezing thing I can do? Uh, you know, what workout? And that's another thing. Like what workout should I do to lose weight? The difference between the best workout and like the 25th best workout is so minimal that you're not going to see a difference. Now, if you're training for Mr. Universe or, uh, you know, some athletic competition, you know, training measures matter because you're talking about a game of inches. Yeah. But when it comes to losing weight, it's just eat, you know, eat less than you burn and and be healthy and make your decisions. And so uh, the questions that I ask myself is, how do I avoid the excuses and how do I make this as easy as possible? And I think, all of those answers turn to conventional wisdom. So with restoration, it's the same thing. You know, OP and I all the time, we'll we'll talk to people about how to have a transformational culture. And it's about spending time with your employees and appreciating them and synergy and, and all of these things that are tired buzzwords. But the reason they're popular and the reason wisdom becomes conventional is more often than not because it works, right? Yeah. Um, we... You know, 90% of self-help books are just the Bible repackaged with more stockholder-friendly terminology, right? <laughs> but, and, and I'm not suggesting that everyone should read the Bible. I'm, I'm not here to pound any, any uh, religious agendas down anyone's throat. But all we're doing is regurgitating the same wisdom over and over and over because people need to see it with a new book cover before we'll actually digest it. Because there's it's, nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. I wonder where that's from. You know, like all of these ideas and all of these principles are, are, are rooted. And so, you know, for me, once I lost, you know, 200 pounds in a year, that showed me that all the stuff that I didn't believe could be done, well, maybe all of that stuff was, was rubbish too, right? Maybe, maybe there is conventional wisdom that can help us transform ourselves and our companies and transformation has really become a big part of my life. I was also afraid to even start for fear of failure. And I think that is a fear that paralyzes far too many people. I was a perfectionist. And, uh, you know, that that journey, a weight loss journey is never linear, right? It goes up, down, up, down, up, down until you eventually get down. And even then it's a constant struggle. And so, you know, you have to you have to accept the non-linearity of it and be okay with scuffing your knees on your way to becoming an Olympian. And, and that's really what it's all about for me. 
Tim, where can people find out more about your story? Because I, I know that we're not doing it justice here. And uh, it's it's a really, uh, I think, important story for people to learn more about. For sure. So, you know, as a kid, I was always made fun of for being, my name was Tim and, and I'm a tall guy. I'm, I'm six, three and a half, six, four. And, you know, when you're 450 pounds, people would say, oh, look, it's tiny Tim. And they would make that <laughs> joke. And so I kind of adopted the moniker of tinier Tim. And so you can find that at tinyertim.com. I've, I've given uh, three TED Talks. Uh, my big one is, is readily available there. Uh, and, and also my story was featured. Eventually, I, I would have my loose skin removed on national television uh, oh, wow. on a TLC show called Skin Tight. Uh, I was actually on the series premiere, season one, episode one of that show. So I did eventually have surgery just to remove the skin. They sure. wouldn't cut my fat. They wouldn't give me the Brazilian butt lift. I tried. Um, <laughs> all I got was the skin removal, unfortunately. And they, wow. they wouldn't do anything with my face either. It's stuck like this, I guess. This uh, <laughs> and, and what about for people who um, are interested in Restoration Mastery? Where can people find out more about that? So Restoration Mastery is a consulting company that works with restoration companies that want to learn to scale, grow, and develop their business. And we know there's a ton of restoration consultants out there that do amazing work. We have so much respect for. Uh, one thing that really separates us is we're actual practitioners. And so we, we reached a stage where Allied could have been a franchised company. And we realized that one of the quickest and easiest ways for us to give back to this industry that we both love and has really you know given us everything, we both see this as you know kind of a a blue collar business with white collar money, the restoration industry. And, and we both have been successful because of it. And the best way we had to give back to these people that we love, the restorers, is to basically tell them, these are all the things that are working best for us. These are best practices. So we develop systems, we develop courses, we develop uh, basically ways to you know create your own uh, allied restoration style systems inside of a company. And, and really, this is what's working today. And so we have, you know, a, a number of people who are a part of our mastermind that we work with very closely, uh, including, you know, going out to see and schedule in-person visits with, although, you know, not right now due to the pandemic, uh, as well as holding all kinds of training events. And, and if you haven't attended one of our Warrior Weekends, we basically give these away. Uh, you'll, you will do some crazy stuff and, and you will come out of it an incredibly changed and evolved uh, restoration company owner, not just your your practices and tactics, but also your skills and mindset. We have a, a website at restorationmastery.com. And then our Instagram, I believe is Resto Mastery. Yes. Yeah. And and guys, we have we have a, a course teaching restorers to, to do COVID-19. And funny enough, when this whole thing started, uh, OP had had this idea about culture and, and we did this culture course and, and OP, I'd I love to, I feel like I'm monopolizing this conversation here. This whole culture conversation, Garrett, is, is massive. And I think uh, people call it sometimes different things, but the reality is we knew that the only way for us to grow was to um, revamp and, and uh, continue to influence our culture. So finally we decided, you know, after a couple of years, we're like, man, we need to create a course. We definitely need to create a course where it's a step-by-step process. And so a lot of what we do is we work, you know, nights and weekends and we shoot, we shot our videos, uh, this source of videos over a weekend. And, and we had, it, it was so powerful. I was so proud of it. I'm like, man, this is so good because a lot of what we create, we create for us as consumers. Like how would we want to consume this as restores? And we were so proud of it. And then COVID-19 showed up and we never got to launch it. <laughs> Oh. And I'm like, that, that sucks, right? But now if you go on to restorationmastery.com, you'll see the culture course. I'm so proud of it. And, and, and I will tell you some people already that we've given it to, they're like, man, this is so good and really unique to what I need. And it comes with a bunch of documents and forms on, on how to create the boundaries, on how to really uh, cultivate the, the people that you want and really how to also understand how to identify the people that really don't fit and mm. what are you going to do with that? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, the uh, leader's pain and the owner's pain comes from keeping people that they know that they don't want or they don't need, but it's their own inconvenience is really why they're not doing it. 
And then tackling, what do you do if they're a relative, right? This, uh, I don't know if you guys tackle that or not, but (laughs) (laughs) but I, I find that in this industry, some of the, 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 the non fits are you know, related to somebody, and then it's very difficult to. Yeah. Um, uh, the the out. business owner must decide that he's in business for the business. And so for me, I've, uh, you know, I have three daughters right now that are 30, 27, and 24, and they've all worked for me at one point, and they've all been fired from me. <laughs> all of them, every one of them, even, even my, my wife at the time my ex-wife. I'm like, it's done. We can't do this because the message that my daughters were sending is, you know, you can be on Facebook all day. You can just goof around all day. Ah. And and I'm sending a different message and it's not congruent and people can see that. So do I honor the culture more or do I honor my, my relatives more? And so because I knew the business must drive everything and because we have the business, everyone gets to survive and live and, and have a good life. So I choose to protect the company first before I protect any one of my relatives. And, and, and that might sound cold to, to some people, but the reality, guys, is you, you have to understand the concept of putting your people first. Your people will not follow you if they see incongruencies in your actions. And you've got to own that. As unfortunate as that is, we have to be responsible that way. Yeah, look, and it, it can definitely work out. I think it's the minority um, that do. Um, those who know me, I uh, know that I have a couple relatives that work at Next Gear, none of which report to me. And I'm very clear to the people they do report to that, you know, they can fire them at any time. And, and I, I try to back that up is, you know, if, if that was ever an issue. I, I think that when you have the right family members, you know, working in your business, they're so invested in making sure that your business is as successful. They're working harder than everybody else and everyone else can see that. Um, and if not, I, I think then, you know, you've got to be able to be willing to make a change. And, and like Absolutely. you said, you, yeah. your, your dedication has to be to the business, not to the, not to the em, em, employees that are family members. You know, Ooh. I'll add my, my first job was, was working for my dad. He was, uh, at that point, eventually he became a district manager for a large fast food franchise and I went to work for him and he told my manager, he was a, a few levels above me. He said, look, I want you to be harder on him and I want everyone to see it yeah. because I don't want there to be any semblance of favoritism. And we had that conversation up front. The second conversation we had up front, and we, we continue to hold both of these conversations anytime you know we're looking at a family member joining, is we, we talk about that termination may happen. And how are we going to do that so that we can maintain the familial relationship? And we talk about firing them before we even talk about hiring them. So we know how to traverse those waters. And we have an upfront contract, to use a Sandler term, on how we will proceed if that goes in that direction. And so I think that having that clarity up front is critical. Yeah, keeping good separation between personal and business is is not is something that a lot of people say they can do and uh, and most struggle to do. But I think it's a it's a very key and important part of actually doing that. And our industry is just one that is so fraught with that. There's most of these are family businesses, generational businesses that are passed down, and it may not even be a family member who's the issue. It could be you know dad's friend who's been working in the business for thirty years, but you know won't use an iPhone, and so we can't right. go digital yeah. because Mr. Jimmy is uh, you know refusing to to play with the new process. Sure. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for uh, um, for taking the time to, to be with me today and, and impart some of your wisdom on the people uh, listening to our podcast. Uh, I wish you guys a safe next several weeks as we've got some unrest going on and we're dealing with COVID um, and uh, a lot of success in 2020. Boom. Thank you so much, Garrett. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Business of Restoration by Next Gear Solutions, a podcast exploring technology in the best practices in the restoration industry. Be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. 